take your Bibles please and turn to 1 Kings in chapter 14 and verse 21. We're going to read on into chapter 15. I was faced with a decision whether to cover the reigns of Rehoboam, uh, Abijam and Asa separately or to combine them. And I decided to combine them because a lot of it will be repeated otherwise. I think there perhaps are good reasons for taking these three kings of Judah together. So we read from verse 21 of 1 Kings chapter 14 and read into chapter 15 down to verse 24. And Rehoboam the son of Solomon reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonites. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and brought them back into the guardroom. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonites. Then Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. In the eighteenth year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacha, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. So Abijam rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. Uh, then Asa, his son, reigned 
in his place. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacha, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Also he removed Maacha, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated, and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. Now there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come, and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Harak heeded King Asa, and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. He attacked Ijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Maacha, and all Chinoroth, with all the land of Naphtali. Now it happened when Baasha heard it, that he stopped building Ramar and remained in Terza. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah, None was exempted. They took away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasho had used for building. And with them, King Asa built Geba, Benjamin, and Mizpah. The rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did, and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But at the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. So Asa rested with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us these portions of Holy Scripture in order to instruct us, in order to warn us, in order to encourage us and direct us in the way of godliness. And Lord, we pray that all that we consider this night might promote godliness in each and every one of our lives to the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. You will recall with the reign of Jeroboam the nation of Israel was split into two. Not into two equal halves, but ten tribes and twelve tribes. Ten tribes and two tribes. So now you have, throughout the rest of one kings and two kings, you have two parallel stories, two parallel narratives, two kingdoms, 
the northern kingdom following the revolt under Jeroboam that is called Israel, the ten tribes that was taken captive and into exile in 722 BC. And then you have the southern kingdom, Judah, based at Jerusalem, the two tribes, Rehoboam is the first king, and they are in Jerusalem until they are taken away by the Babylonians, finally in 586 BC. The section before us that we've just read concerns the two tribes, the southern kingdom, Rehoboam, Asa, and then this king who lived in the middle just for three years and reigned three years, Abijah. Altogether it covers 61 years. And after the terrible apostasy and the repeated unfaithfulness of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, it's as it were the narrator says, well, what was going on in the southern kingdom? What was life like? Was it any better there than it was under Jeroboam with his golden calves of Bethel and Dan? Now, the Spirit of God, using, directing the narrator of this historical account, is very, very selective. Sixty-one years are covered in a few pages. And he effectively says, well, if you want to know more about these kings, you'll have to go and consult the chronicles of the books of Judah. Well, that's all very well for the people who were reading this at the time. They probably had the books of the chronicles of Judah. We don't. All we have are these accounts. Although there is a little more in the book of Chronicles, but that is not the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. It's a book called the Chronicles. Why is he so selective? The reader is, the the narrator is concerned that his readers understand that his fundamental concern is loyalty to God. Do these kings live a life of loyalty to God? All the other things are irrelevant. That is why he leaves them out. Now we have seen Israel has been plunged into darkness. The worship of Jeroboam is utterly false and rejected. Jeroboam, remember that awful phrase, he's put God and God's word behind his back. He has rejected God and God rejects Jeroboam. Well, what's happening in Judah? Is it any better there? Is it any different there? Well, first of all, we look this evening at the darkness that is descending even on Judah. The darkness that is descending even on Judah. We are reminded in chapter 14 and verse 21, right at the very outset, as we are given this Summary, the selective summary of Rehoboam's reign, that he reigned in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. We are reminded Jerusalem is God's chosen dwelling place. Here was the temple in all its golden glory. Here was God's special presence promised to his people. This was in fulfilment of the promise 
given to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12, in fulfilment of the promise given to David, who was the first great king there in Jerusalem. And that statement in verse 21 makes what we find here in chapters 14 and 15 very sad. Because the decline is quite serious. This is God's chosen dwelling place. Bethel and Dan are irrelevant. They are not God's chosen dwelling place. That's Jeroboam's own religion. Jerusalem is special. There is the temple that was dedicated on that great day by Solomon. But we find the rot that started towards the end of Solomon's reign. That rot continues. And it continues in varying degrees over this period of six decades, 60 years. And there are three elements that we want to trace out. The rot as it is expressed in idolatry, in immorality, and in war. The three elements, idolatry, immorality, and war. First of all, in chapter 14, and verses 22 and 23, we read, not that Rehoboam so much as did evil, but Judah. Notice that, verse 22, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all they, their fathers had done. Judah does evil. They provoke the Lord to anger. They outsinned their fathers. Sin was introduced, idolatry was introduced on an unprecedented scale in the city where God said, that's where I dwell. And not only in the city of Jerusalem, and God has said, you restrict the worship to Jerusalem, but no, they ignored that, and they began to build their various shrines and altars throughout the land of Judah. They broke the covenant commandments of God. There was no loyalty to the Lord who had redeemed them and by his outstretched arm had brought them out of the land of Cain, out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. We read in verse 23 of their high places, their sacred pillars and their wooden images. All of them forbidden by Moses. I will not go into all the passages we can refer to, but they are all forbidden. Moses anticipates that they will indeed copy the religion of the Canaanites. And this is what they were doing. These high places, they were not necessarily on mountains and hills, but they were places for pagan worship. A flat-hewn, rock-hewn table with an altar where you could offer up your sacrifices to the gods. The sacred pillars, standing stones that usually represented male gods, and then the wooden images, probably female goddesses. But these were all related to Baal worship and Asherah worship. And Baal was supposed to be responsible for the fertility of the land. And it was Judah, and not only Rehoboam, but it was Judah who did evil. But it is ominous that Naamah, the Ammonites, is mentioned twice. At the beginning of his reign, or beginning of the account of his reign, and at the end in verse 31. She is an Ammonites. 
She had been introduced into the kingdom by Solomon and she brought her pagan influence with her. And it is probable that she is mentioned twice and he doesn't need to comment. She's an Ammonites. We know then what that means. That means idolatry. But you see, it began in Rehoboam's reign and it was continued by his son Abijam. If we turn over to chapter 15 and verse 3, he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. He only reigned for three years. But in those three years, there seems to have been not one indication of any loyalty to the Lord God. And it continued on in the reign of Asa. And we learn here in the reign of Asa in verse 10 of the influence of Maacha, the granddaughter of Abishalom. But the important thing is Maacha is the, is the mother of Abijam and the grandmother of Asa. And her influence is very, very strong indeed. She was the great lady. She was the big mother. She was the queen mother, as it were. And she wielded her influence in the kingdom of Judah. She was responsible, we are told, in verse 13, for an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa consigned it to the rubbish tip in Jerusalem, in the Kidron Valley. And though Asa was able to do a great deal of good, he was, unlike Rehoboam and unlike Abijam, his predecessors, he was loyal. He did what was right, verse 11 of chapter 15, in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father, David. Yet the rot was still there. It was not entirely removed. Verse 14, the high places were not removed. Despite Asa's loyalty to the Lord his God all his days, and he lived a long life and had a long reign, 41 years, he was not able to exterminate the high places. And so the darkness is descending. Even it is still present in the reign of Asa. But then there is immorality. An immorality of the worst kind. We are told in chapter 14 and verse 24, in the reign of Rehoboam, there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. This is a reference to prostitution and sodomy. It was introduced in the reign of Rehoboam in connection with the religious rituals associated with the Baal worship. Baal was the god of fertility and it was symbolized in ritual sexual acts. And this was a copying of the Canaanite abominations. This was the reason why God had driven out the Canaanite nations from the land and gave it to the people of Israel. And here they were, now imitating this vile, vile immorality associated with religion. They were introduced in Rehoboam's reign. There is not a mention of any action on the part of Abijam to remove them, but 
Asa did. It was one thing that he was able to do. Verse 12 of chapter 15. He banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. Rehoboam and Abijam turned a blind eye to these perversions. Why were they so disloyal? Did they not know that the Lord had driven those seven nations out of the land of Canaan because of their ungodliness, because of these iniquities? Did they honestly think then that God would turn a blind eye to these same things that were being done by them, the people of God? When religion is joined to immorality, you have a terrible perversion. You have a terrible apostasy, a sad declension. And although we are not dealing with uncleanness of this kind on the same scale, in the same way, when men and women in the professing Church of Jesus Christ approve of same-sex relationships, that is an abomination in the eyes of God. And it has no place in the true church of Jesus Christ. When God created this world, he created everything very good. And among the things he created very good was the whole pattern of one man and one woman in holy matrimony. And that is reflected in the Ten Commandments. And the commandment that says you shall not commit adultery, that could well be extended by application to deal with every kind of sexual impurity and uncleanness. But often you will find in the Bible, amongst all these nations, and sadly even amongst the Old Testament people of God from time to time, and among the nations of the world in which we live, you will find religion joined with sexual immorality. There is something potent about the bringing together of those two things. But there is a third element that displays the darkness descending upon Jerusalem, not only the idolatry, not only the immorality, but also the reality of war. You recall that when David became king, he had a number of battles which he fought with the nations around him. But God gave rest to David from all his enemies. And you remember, perhaps in 1 Kings 4 and verse 25, in the reign of Solomon, Solomon's name means peace. You remember Judah and Israel. That will be significant in a moment. Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his own fig tree. From Dan to Beersheba in the days of Solomon. It was only in the latter days of Solomon that his adversaries began to come against him. The peace was over. The judgment of God began to fall upon the nation. And we find here in chapter 14 and verse 25. It happened. And we shouldn't interpret that well just by chance. This is the wisdom and the power and the sovereignty of our God. It happened in the divine plan and purpose that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up 
against Jerusalem. He'd only been king five years. And Egypt comes. Now it's not entirely clear if Shishak came and actually raided uh, the city of Jerusalem or whether Rehoboam bought him off and saved the city from being ravaged. I think the latter is probably more likely. He takes away all the golden shields of Solomon. And Shishak, he has his chronicles too. And they're recorded, and you can, you can, I think they're in the British Museum actually. But anyway, you will find there a record in his chronicles of this very feat. That he came from Egypt and he wanted the trade routes. He wanted to control the trade routes. So he came and he threatened Jerusalem. But there's no mention of an actual war, but the peace of Jerusalem is now unsettled. They have foreigners coming into the land. And what is happening? What do these foreigners do? They take away the glory that belonged to Solomon and to the kingdom. And what is even sadder is there is no record of Rehoboam calling upon one of the prophets asking for the wisdom of God. What do I do? Can you pray for us? How can we escape this? And the glory and part of the glory of Solomon's kingdom is carted off to Egypt. The nation from which they had been redeemed. And besides that, there is constant war between Israel and Judah. And we read in 425, Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Now they're at each other. There is civil war among the people of God. The peace has been shattered. Verse 30. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. And verse 7 of chapter 15. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And then verse 16, Jeroboam's successor, Baasha. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And we are given a detail about this war, this conflict between Asa and between Baasha. Again, it was over controlling trade routes. It was a border zone trouble. And what Asa did Asa did not resort to God at this point. What he did was he buys off the threat of Baasha by appealing to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, which lay even further to the north, north of the kingdom of Israel. And we read in verse uh, 18, Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who'd lived in, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I sent you a present of silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. The word present is far too soft. Bribe will be far more appropriate. The word is used a number of times in the Old Testament. It's always in a bad sense. It's a bribe. He's paying this man. 
He's giving him a backhander and saying to him, here you are, I'll hand out all this. What I want you to do now is to distract the attention of Basha, remove his presence from my borders, my northern borders, plague him in your, nor- in your southern borders, his northern borders, and get him out of my hair. So he takes a pragmatic line. There is no seeking after the face of God and pays him off with the silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house. Again, something of the glory of Solomon's kingdom has been carted off to a foreign nation. You see the darkness descending? The glory is departing. The darkness is not like Jeroboam's, admittedly. But gone are the days of rest and safety and peace. And despite the reforms of Asa, and we have to stand in admiration of his stand against his grandmother. That was a, that was a courageous act of a younger man to stand against this fight, vital force in the kingdom. Idolatry still remained, even in the reign of Asa. And it had gained its foothold. And although Asa again removed the immorality associated with these perverted persons, nevertheless, that phrase in Rehoboam's reign that Israel, rather Judah, sinned on an unprecedented scale, tells us that although things are not as bad as they are in the northern kingdom under Jeroboam, the darkness is nevertheless descending. But has God departed? Has God abandoned Judah because of her sin? We will not underestimate Asa despite his bribing of Ben-Hadad. We are told he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But still the darkness is descending. But despite that, secondly, we see the lamp that shines in the darkness in Jerusalem. The lamp that shines. We've already been reminded in chapter 14 and verse 21 that Jerusalem is special. It goes back to the days of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verses 1 to 5 where God says, Once you have dispossessed the Canaanites of the land and destroyed their idols and you seek the place that I choose, you put my name there. I will put my name there for my dwelling place. There you will go, and there you will worship me. Now you might have thought that as soon as idolatry and that gross immorality was introduced in Judah and Jerusalem, that God would surely withdraw his presence and abandon the nation to sin. This was his chosen dwelling place. How could God dwell in the midst of that sin, that filth, that idolatry, But God, mysteriously to us, God had made a promise. A promise to David. We read in chapter 15, and in the very next word after, we have read of Abijam's disloyalty. We read of God's faithfulness and God's loyalty in verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, 
The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. David had been loyal to the Lord his God. There is testimony to that by the narrator in verse 3 of chapter 15. He had done what was right in the eyes of God, apart from the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And remember that he had truly repented of his sin against Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah. That is recorded for us in Psalm 51. It is recorded for us in Psalm 32. It is recorded for us in the narrative in 2 Samuel. David was a man who had burned with love for God. With zeal for his name. With zeal for his worship. And God had entered into covenant with David. And said, I will establish your son. I will establish Jerusalem. I will establish your throne. I will establish your kingdom. That was his promise. That was why there were still two tribes left when Jeroboam became king over the other ten. That was why not all the twelve tribes rebelled and there was still the land of Judah and there was still Jerusalem. My servant David, says the Lord, will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. That match was established On a number of occasions, we could just turn back to chapter 11 and verse 36, where before we read uh, of of the actual revolt against Rehoboam, when, when the prophet comes to Jeroboam, we are told in verse 34, however, God says, I will not take the whole kingdom out of the hand of Rehoboam. Because I've made him ruler over the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So despite the descending darkness, why has God's presence not been entirely removed? Why is there still a kingdom in Judah? Why is there still a king in Jerusalem of the Davidic line? Is because of David's faithfulness? Yes. But fundamentally it's because of God's promise. God's faithfulness. God has promised as much to David even though some of his sons will commit iniquity, even though they are soft on sin and they reign with blind eyes at times, 15.4 tells us quite clearly, the kingdom remains because God has decided it will remain. A lamp will remain in Jerusalem. It will not vanish from the scene. Of course, from one of David's, from David's line comes one of David's descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we open our New Testament passage, 
our New Testament Bibles and we turn to the first passage we read. It's a family tree. And you trace the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are his descendants? He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. And the line is traced. There is God's ultimate faithfulness and loyalty. But of course that running, that's running ahead by about 1500 years. But why is the kingdom remain? Because of God's loyalty. The lamp that shines in Jerusalem. Someone has said that the grace of God is not only great and the grace of God is not only greater than our sins but it is more stubborn than our sins. God's grace persists despite sin. And it is only because God's grace persists in the face of sin that you are sitting here this evening and I am standing here preaching to you. If God dealt with each one of us as we deserved, that would be it. We would not have a leg to stand on. It's that same stubbornness of grace. It's that same persistence of grace that overflows to us in abundance in Jesus Christ. These us to ponder, to marvel, to wonder. Now that grace that God speaks of here in chapter 15 and verse 4, it remains and shines for a little while, for a number of years, in Asa. He had the loyal heart of his father, David. He was a breath of fresh air. He is a ray of sunshine, a ray of light and of hope in the darkness. And all the brighter because he refused to kowtow to the big influence in his palace, his own grandmother. She promoted the false religion of the Canaanites. She was opposed to God. She belittled the promises. She was devoid of love for the one true and living God. And what happened to her idols? Asa took them and put them where they belonged with the rest of the city's rubbish and refuse. If I'm not mistaken, it is that place that was used by our Lord Jesus Christ to refer to hell, Gehenna. Gehenna was the name that became the valley of Kidron. It was the city rubbish dip. And when our Lord spoke of the fires that never go out, that's what he was referring to in the first instance. It was always a burning rubbish. That's where her idols ended up. A fitting place for them. Now Asa was not consistent. He bribed Ben-Hadar. He, re- he resolved not to seek the face of God. He was a somewhat of a smooth politician, a pragmatist. It worked. But Asher was off his back. Success is not necessarily a sign of loyalty to God. When you turn to the parallel account in the book of the Chronicles, when you read Asa's reign, there is a prophet who rebukes him for his conduct. But that is not recorded here. So what do we see? We've seen the darkness descending. We've seen human sinfulness 
on an ascendancy in Judah. Although it extends for a while in Asa's reign, nevertheless the foundations have been laid for the removal of Judah in due course. The high places were not removed even in the 41 years of Asa's reign. But at the same time we see the lamp that shines. God's persistence. God's stubborn refusal, if I may put it that way, to forget his promises to David. He is committed to that promise. And he will not go back upon that promise. And we can trace that promise throughout the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures and through into the New Testament Scriptures. Where again and again we are told that Jesus Christ is at the seed of David. And every time you read that phrase, your heart ought to leap with joy because of God's loyalty and God's faithfulness. He is utterly reliable. He keeps his word. But how does all this impact us? What difference is it going to make? to the way in which we live. We cannot just shrug our shoulders and say, well that's interesting. This is the word of God. It's meant to have an impact upon us. So what then, thirdly, is God saying to us? I would suggest three things. There are others, I'm sure. But I want to bring a word of warning, a word of instruction, and a word of exhortation in the light of what we have seen from this passage. First of all, a word of warning. God gives us passages of scripture like this in order to warn us. The red lights are flashing. When God's word is constantly disregarded, and I'm thinking here of Rehoboam, of Abijam, I'm thinking of Naama, the Ammonites, I'm thinking of Maaka the mother of Abijam and the grandmother of Asa. When they and people like them disregard the law of Moses, the promises of God to David, his actions in the past with regard to the Canaanites, what happened to them, when these sorts of things happen and they return to the sins of the Canaanites and bring back all this false religion, God will judge. God will intervene. God will eventually drive them out of the land. God will destroy their idols as Asa destroyed the idols of his grandmother. Even though they have sinned previous generations, God will call them to account. Does it matter then if we disregard God and if we disregard the Word of God? Does it matter that the world outside of these four walls, the world that we were preaching to this morning, the men and women we rub shoulders with, does it matter that they disregard the Word of God because they don't know it, because they don't understand it? It makes no difference. They are accountable to God. What may be known of God is revealed to them in this entire world. Even though they do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are without excuse. They live their lives without reference to God, without reference to thankfulness to God. If you disregard God and His Word, there is a price to be paid. But I'm not preaching to the world at large. I'm preaching to us, to the Church of Christ, 
It's all very easy to point the finger out there. We have to point the finger in here, at our own hearts, and say, do we disregard certain parts of the Word of God, certain commandments? Do we not believe certain promises of God? If we shun the Lord, and we shun His Word, God has the likes of a Shishak and many others who are his instruments of judgment and chastening. Sin doesn't change its character simply because it's done by Christians, by the professing people of God. Sin is sin. We arouse the anger of God when we disregard his word. We grieve the spirit of God. The warning is clear. You can never afford, I can never afford to disregard any part of the word of God. Promises, the commandments, the precepts, the statutes. Judah, we read, did evil. Abijah walked in all the sins of his father. See, the word of God doesn't give us a neutral assessment. It paints it in black and white. Evil. Wickedness. We're weighed up in the balances. We dare not disregard the word of God in any part of it. There is a warning. But there is secondly <coughs> a word of instruction. The Spirit of God in this passage in chapter 14 and 15 is underlining loyalty. Doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. We read here in verse 3 of chapter 15 of David whose heart was loyal to the Lord his God. Abijam, his descendant, was not David was. Asa was. To a large extent. But what is lacking in this 60 years of history, in the reigns of, Jerobo, uh, in the reigns of Rehoboam, in the reign of Abijam, and the reign of Asa, is consistent loyalty and trust and confidence in God. A love for God. A zeal for God. Asa is loyal and we have already drawn attention to his courage. But he is not consistent. Instead of trusting in God, he offers a bribe. Instead of putting his confidence in God, he buys off his political rival with a bit of shrewd diplomacy. But what is instructive is this. The importance of consistent loyalty to the Lord your God. You see, we said the Spirit of God wasn't very much interested in anything else apart from this thing. That's why he says, go, go and read the rest. You want to know the rest? Go and read it in the books of the Chronicles. I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned with were these men loyal to God. That's the fundamental issue. That's the way we evaluate these kings. And he is focusing on the faithfulness of God to his promises. 
and he is focusing on the response of the people of God to the promises and to the commands of God. Loyalty, consistent loyalty, means you have an eye constantly on the faithfulness and the loyalty of God. And when that begins to impinge upon your mind and heart and your conscience, and you realize how committed God is to us, and you realize again what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of his promises, and what he has done in giving us his Holy Spirit, and what he has done in saving us from our sins, and giving us the hope of glory that is set before us, What kind of heart is it that then says, well, it doesn't matter then how I respond to such faithfulness and such loyalty. But the tragedy is we find the seeds of unfaithfulness lying not very deep under our skin and in the depths of our heart. I'm tempted to say that that is a worse perversity than sodomy and immorality the perverseness of an unfaithful heart when God is so loyal and so faithful and so utterly reliable why are we so fickle why are we so easily distracted easily led astray oh what wickedness lies still within our hearts but the word of instruction is Loyalty. Consistent loyalty. There's nothing new, is there, in that? It needs to be driven home, nailed home, day by day, week by week. Because if it is not loyalty, and if it is not consistent loyalty, sin, evil, wickedness will steadily march their way into our hearts and lives and drive us and drag us away from love to God. It comes down to it, this is about loving God with all our heart and soul and strength. Walking loyally before the Lord our God. And it's a matter of the heart. Not the outward Impression, but a matter of the heart, the disposition of the heart. How dependent we are upon the Spirit of God to daily renew us, to daily excite us in order that we might walk in all the ways of the Lord our God. There's a third thing. What is God saying to us? We had a word of warning, there's a word of instruction, now a word of exhortation. Do all you can to serve Christ. And I say that from the word here, from the example of Asa. When Asa came to the throne, he faced a bleak situation. In the palace, his grandmother ruled. She was the big, dominant figure. She was there before he was there, and her influence was paramount. His father had not been a faithful man of God. Idolatry had taken hold on the nation. Perversion and immorality was common practice. And what did Asa do? He didn't go with the flow, either in his palace or in his nation. 
although he is not entirely consistent. The passage here shows us this man's loyalty to Christ and what he was able to accomplish. And I want you to, I want to exhort you to do everything within your power to do and serve Jesus Christ. We live in dark days like Asa did. And we may be tempted to say, oh, there's nothing we can really do. I am not going to make a great deal of difference. This one church, so small, is not going to make a great deal of difference. How can we stand the tide of godlessness that is around us? Well, if we begin to think too long about that, we'll do nothing whatsoever. And we'll end up in despair. And our prayers will begin to echo that kind of despair. We can do nothing. What I want to underline to you is this. And to exalt you to this. Look, it is possible to be faithful in the midst of ungodliness. Even if you are the only one. Even if we were the only church. And we are not. But it is possible to be faithful. It is possible to strive for the purity of the worship of God and to reverse some of the evil patterns that have become part and parcel of palace life and of the national life. There are no grounds for despair so long as God is upon His throne, so long as God remains loyal and faithful to His promises. This is still Jerusalem, Asa. It is still my chosen dwelling place. I am still here. I am to be worshipped. We're not going to be deafened by what we hear. There is no God. You're wasting your time. All these other religions are as legitimate as the Christian religion. We're not going to listen and stuff our ears with that nonsense. No, we are going to remain loyal to the Lord our God. And we are going to do what we can in our generation. To promote the honour and glory of Christ. And to stem the tide of wickedness. We're going to leave in a moment. When we move on to the rest of chapter 15. In the following sermon we're going to leave the kingdom of Judah. For a lot of chapters. There were six kings in Asa's reign who took over the nation of Israel. And it was ten times worse in Israel than it was in Judah. Nadab, Baasha, Eli, Zimri, Omri, Ahab. And then we will return to Asa's son, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was different from all these other men. Jehoshaphat did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Who taught him? It certainly wasn't his grandmother, or his great-grandmother, I should say. It was his father. I would say to those of you who are parents, bringing up your children, one of the greatest ways in which you may serve Christ is to bring your child up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord, in the midst of all this ungodliness, and to see them by the grace of God profess a strong and firm faith in Christ. And that influence will probably then outlive your life here upon this earth as it outlived the life of Asa 
in his son Jehoshaphat. This man did what he could to serve Christ. He may well have been a lone voice in his palace and a lone voice in the nation, but he did good. Yes, he compromised at the end of his reign, but he did good. He did what he could. And I want to urge you and exhort you to do everything within your power then to serve Christ faithfully. You may be the only person in your family. You may be the only person in the place of work. You may be the only person down your row among your neighbours who is a Christian. It makes no difference. You have God. You have Christ on your side. You have truth. You have the promises. You have the commandments of God. You have the one who is seated upon his throne. You have his grace. Display that grace in your life as you live loyally to serve your God. So pray that your influence may be the influence of a man like Asa who accomplished so much good. Why? Because he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was loyal. He was faithful. May God grant to us Loyalty, faithfulness. He is worthy of it, given who he is and all he has done to us and for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. O Lord, our God, we praise you for your great faithfulness toward us. We thank you that not one of your words of commandment, not one of your words of promise, have ever failed to stand. And our God, we thank you for your love and grace toward us in Christ. And we acknowledge, our God, how often we have sinned, how disloyal and unfaithful we have been to you. Forgive us, pardon us, cleanse us. By your Holy Spirit, grant, O God, that our whole being, our whole bodies, would offer again to you as a sacrifice. Lord, that is the very least we can do in the light of all your goodness and kindness and undeserved favour toward us. Hear us then, our God, and accept us and use us for good and to extend the honour and glory of Christ in this land, we pray. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Amen.